coordinator of Code Pink Congress, a campaign to mobilize congressional support for a new progressive foreign policy and demilitarization at home. Thank you for tuning in to Code Pink Radio, broadcast on WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City and WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C., also on Spotify and iTunes. Code Pink is a women's-led anti-war organization. Please join Code Pink Congress the first and third Tuesdays of the month. You'll meet members of Congress as well as foreign policy experts outside the Beltway. We take action. We call Capitol Hill, the White House, the State Department. We urge our representatives to co-sponsor bills and use their positions, their platforms in Congress to advance progressive policies. Today on Code Pink Radio, we will cover a lot of ground. First, our executive order wish list for 2022. Medea Benjamin will be with me in just a minute. Then a conversation with anti-war activists Colonel Ann Wright and Pat Elder, an expert on military toxins. They'll talk about the leaking fuel facility contaminated water for nearly 100,000 people in Hawaii. Finally, we will discuss the global arms sales, pull back the curtain on how exactly the United States arms the world, not just with bombs and missiles, but also semi-automatic rifles to right-wing police forces around the globe. How do we stop this madness? Stay tuned. First, our Code Pink radio wish list for 2022. Listen. With me on Code Pink Radio is the co-founder of Code Pink and my co-host on Code Pink Congress, Medea Benjamin. Welcome, Medea. Nice to be on with you, Marcy. Yeah, great to have you join me so that we can deliver jointly this Code Pink radio wish list for executive orders we want President Biden to sign in 2022. Here's what Biden could do administratively. He's got the power. He can do it by executive order tomorrow. Forget those obstructionist corporate shills like Senators Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema for a minute. Those who object to social spending while passing a record high military budget. President Biden would not need their approval. All he would need is a pen. On the Code Pink executive order wish list is number one. Well, let's start with weapon sales to Saudi Arabia, since when Biden was a candidate, he talked about Saudi Arabia should be treated as a pariah state, and you don't send weapons to a pariah state. Yet he has just authorized $650 billion of weapons to a country that is continuing a genocidal war in neighboring Yemen, which has left over 200,000 people dead and 16 million people facing starvation. He says these are defensive weapons, but we know there is a very, very thin line between defensive and offensive. 
And we know these weapons are being used to enforce a brutal blockade that is keeping essential food, medicine, and fuel from the country. So let's start out with that. Stop weapon sales to Saudi Arabia. Amen. Number two, unfreeze Afghanistan's assets, 9.5 billion in US controlled banks. That's their money. Let them have it, they need it, they're starving. Uh, President Biden, use your influence with the World Bank and the IMF to provide funds for Afghans in need of food, medicine, housing, and schools. We've been on this, involved in a 20-year occupation, and now we're imposing starvation on Afghanistan. Unfreeze the assets. Executive order number three. Well, why don't we prohibit U.S. drone assassinations? Especially, especially in light of this recent New York Times report that came out that showed that one in five bombings in Iraq had resulted in civilian deaths and that the U.S. had severely undercounted the number of civilians killed in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria. And so we think it's about time to stop the drone strikes. And while he's at it, he should also free the truth teller, the whistleblower, Daniel Hale, who was a drone analyst, who said very much the same things, that our drone strikes are killing innocent civilians. Let's stop it. Yes, free Daniel Hale. Instead, those who are responsible for these drone authorizations, they get promoted. Daniel Hale goes to prison. Free Daniel Hale. Number five, no, excuse me, number four, resolve not to launch any new military action under the auspices of either the 2001 or 2002 authorizations for use of military force. Those authorizations uh, gave our presidents a permission slip to invade and occupy Afghanistan and Iraq and to conduct these drone attacks, these uh, drone assassinations that we were just talking about. So President Biden, use your pen. Do away with these authorizations of military force. Number five. Well, I'm going to take uh, Guantanamo prison because this is something that uh, dates back to the Bush years when there were almost 800 uh, prisoners being detained without trial, uh, without any due process. And it was supposed to be closed under Obama. He didn't do it. It's about time that it be closed under Biden. There's still 39 prisoners there. And uh, once and for all, it should be closed. And I'm going to add a couple of other things as part of this, Marcy, which is we should make a commitment to end uh, this uh, indefinite uh, detention that we've been doing at Guantanamo. Also, make a commitment to no torture. And while we're talking about Guantanamo, I think we ought to say that that land that the U.S. bases on belongs to the Cuban people, and he should give it back. Absolutely. It's so bizarre. Here we have this blockade against Cuba, yet we have a naval base in Cuba on Guantanamo where we keep people uh, indefinitely without trial, without charge. Outrageous. And then we blame Cuba for human rights abuses. Yeah. We'll talk Let's more about Cuba in a minute. <laughs> uh, number six on the executive order wish list for 2022. President Biden, we want you to reverse Trump on the global sale of semi-automatic weapons. People understand the problem with rampant gun ownership, semi-automatic weapons in the United States. What a lot of people are, are not aware of is that we are shipping these semi-automatics all over the world. 
When Trump was in the White House, he moved approval of semi-automatic assault weapons and sniper rifles to the Department of Commerce. Why? Why did he move it to Commerce from the Department of State? Because the Department of Commerce is not required to notify Congress about these sales. So if we want any congressional oversight at all, we need the sales of semi-automatics to be moved back to the State Department. That's an executive order. But we both know that we need to stop these global arms sales. Well, that's right. And I think um, let's take for number seven, the sanctions against Cuba, which has been part of a 60-year blockade that has not resulted in a change of government, but only pain and suffering of the Cuban people, especially now under COVID, especially when they've lost all of their income from tourism. And on top of that, the sanctions were tightened under Biden so that another major source of income, which was family remittances, you know, what Cuban Americans send to their loved ones back home, he stopped that. So we have been involved in efforts to address the humanitarian crisis in Cuba, like sending six million syringes we helped raise money for and a plane load of food. But more important than that would be Biden reversing Trump's 243 new sanctions that he put on with the stroke of a pen and Biden could lift them with the stroke of the pen as well. 243, I didn't realize there were so many that Trump had imposed and that Biden refuses to lift. That's, that's so egregious. Okay, on to the next. Number eight, here's a big one, cancel student debt. Biden has announced a pause on payments until May, which in effect cancels months of interest on that debt. But if the president is serious about meeting the needs of those at home, he will cancel student debt, which at 1.7, 1.9 trillion is dwarfed by our military budget that flew through Congress, $778 billion this year. Congress is poised to pass an $8 trillion military budget over the next 10 years. Forgive student debt. Next on the executive order wish list, what's up next, Medea? Well, let's look at an environmental one because we're just coming out of a recent climate change conference called COP26, which took place in uh, Scotland. And there was a tremendous uh, outcry from people around the world about the environmental crisis and countries like the United States not doing enough to address it. So I say that Biden should take his pen and halt the line three oil pipeline. And in fact, all pipelines that threaten to contaminate indigenous lands and water and further exacerbate the climate crisis. Yes, we've heard so much about Manchin. He won't approve this or that for climate sustainability. But meanwhile, Biden has executive power that he could use he's not using to ensure that we have fewer greenhouse gas emissions. All right, number 10. This is the last one on the hit parade. President Biden, we want you to sign an executive order to reverse Trump's executive order that refuses asylum to refugees based on a policy most have never heard of called Title 42 that bars asylum over concerns about the spread of COVID. Yes, we are concerned about the spread of COVID, but that doesn't mean that we deny people the legal right to asylum. Certainly there are other answers to this issue. So, Medea? 
Those well, are it's a great top 10 list, and it's amazing uh, that the president has so much power that he could do all of these and more uh, in, in the beginning of 2022. In fact, he could do it on January 1st, but will he do it is the question. Will he sign any of them? Only if we make him. That's right. Only if we demand a new foreign policy. Be loud, relentless. Thank you, Medea Benjamin. Next, we turn to discuss the urgent situation in Hawaii. That's where military families and residents of Oahu are demanding the Navy shut down the Red Hill fuel facility, leaking toxins into the drinking water near the Pearl Harbor Naval Base in Oahu. Our guests are Colonel Ann Wright, a Code Pink organizer who resigned from her U.S. diplomatic post with the State Department to protest the 2003 invasion of Iraq. Also, Pat Elder, author of Military Recruiting in the United States and advocate for testing the groundwater near military bases to ensure the water is not contaminated. First, Anne Wright. In Hawaii, where we've had um, uh, big leaks from the massive, massive U.S. Navy uh, fuel tanks, jet fuel tanks that have been here for 80 years and everything that's 80 years old leaks, we know that. Uh, these massive leaks uh, have uh, contaminated the water for 93,000 people, uh, many of them military families. Uh, over 4,000 uh, people are now in uh, hotels that have been rented by the Navy here in Waikiki. And uh, others though, uh, civilians that have been affected have not uh, gotten anything from the U.S. government, uh, uh, and they are living in their homes, but having to drink uh, bottled water and having to go to uh, shower facilities uh, like in gyms and things like that. The Navy is now flushing uh, water out of some houses and out of fire hydrants, which is giving us a lot of concern because supposedly the water goes into big, huge filtration things that have been flown in from the continent. Uh, and uh, then it just is spewed out the other end of these big tanks and out into the ground. So uh, nobody has really tested and shown us the results of the testing of the water that is now pouring out of these filtration systems and going into the, the uh, playgrounds really of uh, the communities that have been affected. How horrific. So how many people potentially might be impacted by these leaking fuel tanks? Well, we know that 93,000 people are on the two aquifer or the two wells that the uh, military has had to close down because they did admit that, yes, these wells have been contaminated with jet fuel. Uh, jet fuel. So 93,000. Uh, that that those fuel tanks are only 100 feet above the aquifer of the majority of the people that live in Honolulu, 400,000 people. So our concern is that uh, some of the wa the wa wells that have been contaminated may back flush into the major aquifer and contaminate the water for over a half a million, well, 400,000. And then water would have to be diverted from other aquifers that are on the north and east side of the island, and then uh, brought into the major population center, which is Honolulu. What, why will the military not shut down this fuel facility? 
Have, have oh, they it, given you an answer? The Red Hill uh, fuel facility, jet fuel facility, is the uh, is the storage place uh, for the fuel for naval vessels and for aircraft here in the mid-Pacific. And the Navy says it is a national security uh, facility that without that, then uh, uh, the military would not have fuel to uh, uh, send its, uh, its ships on out to the Western Pacific to scare everybody about whether or not you know they will precipitate some sort of military confrontation uh, with China. So that the military maintains it's uh, for national security. We, we maintain that uh, human security is a part of national security and that if you're killing off the people that live here, and I would think that the military, I mean, having been in the military 29 years myself, uh, I would think that the senior commanders of the military here on, uh, on Oahu, uh, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marines, and the uh, uh, Coast Guard uh, would like to uh, preserve the health of their own community and those people that actually operate the ships, the submarines, the, the jet uh, airplanes, because we, it has been known that um, military folks have sabotaged uh, military equipment. And if you're not taking care of the military families, uh, there, can, there certainly will be and already are many dis, disenchanted, disaffected uh, military people. And what are the demands of the people on the ground who are organizing to pr protest this uh, crime? Really, it's a crime. Well, yes, it is a crime. Uh, our demands are that the, the tanks, 20 of them, which are each 20 stories tall and each can hold 12.5 million gallons uh, of jet fuel, that those be drained and we don't, well, we do care where the, the fuel is put. We want it to be put in safe, safe places. Uh, and then that uh, Red Hill facility be permanently closed because it will always leak. Uh, it's 80 years old and the tanks that are in it that are really irreparable. And financially, it's better to, to close them down and construct something else. Absolutely. Pat, does any of this surprise you? No, not at all. You know, I was in Hawaii almost two years ago and, uh, and you know, to speak about PFAS, per and, and polyfluoroalkyl substances, and I addressed uh, a, a group of uh, veterans for peace and, and others. And, um, you know, they said the granddaddy of all issues we've been fighting for more than a generation is a red hill. Uh, and, and I said, well, you know, you got to worry about the PFAS as well. But uh, it's not like this is a sudden shocker. <laughs> and Anne can tell you that uh, everyone has known it's just not great public policy to take several hundred million gallons of JP5 uh, and place it over top of a drinking water aquifer and, and, and have them sitting in 80 year old rusted containers. Pat Elder and Colonel Ann Wright on the military's contamination of drinking water in Oahu. Please write whitehouse.gov, that's whitehouse.gov, and demand that the Navy close the Red Hill fuel facility. It's a public health hazard. You can also sign our Code Pink petition at codepink.org backslash 
shut down Red Hill. Codepink.org backslash shut down Red Hill. I'm Marcy Winograd for Code Pink Radio. Coming up on the second half of our show, we will pull back the curtain on U.S. global arms sales, how those weapon sales work, and how we can stop them. First, Nina Simone with Here Comes the Sun. Here comes the sun, little darling. Here comes the sun, I say it's all right. It's all right. Here comes the sun, little darling. Here comes the sun, I say it's all right. Simone with Here Comes the Sun. Thank you for tuning in to Code Pink Radio, broadcast on WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City and WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C., also on Spotify and iTunes. I'm Marcy Winograd, coordinator and co-host of Code Pink Congress. 
and I'd like to invite you to join us the first and third Tuesday of each month. That's when we feature members of Congress, also experts on developing a progressive foreign policy. Sign up at codepink.org backslash codepinkcongress. Once again, that's codepink.org backslash codepinkcongress. A few weeks ago, we hosted a Code Pink Congress on U.S. weapon sales. Who has the power to authorize these sales? Who has the power to stop them? The hidden ways the U.S. arms the world. Our featured guests were Danica Katowicz, a Code Pink organizer, and John Lindsay Poland of Global Exchange. Listen, I promise you, this will be illuminating. First, Danica. Very basics of arms sales, how the U.S. sells a weapon to another country. Um, my focus will be mostly uh, arms sales that go through the State Department, because the issue that um, John Lindsay Poland will be talking about is the shift to the Department of Commerce, which the, the problematic nature of that will be uh, will make sense very soon. So to this very basic, I'm not going to get into in, into all the weeds. So everything is a little bit more nuanced than I'll be describing. Um, but so there's two kind of ways the U.S. sells, two main ways the U.S. sells weapons to another country. Foreign military sales or FMS and direct commercial st- or direct uh, commercial sales. So for foreign military sales, the U.S. government sells uh, weapons to another country. So it's like uh, if you hear the U.S. sold weapons to Israel or the U.K. sold weapons to Saudi Arabia, two things that happen often those two examples. And then direct commercial sales are a US company to another country. So like Boeing can directly sell weapons to Israel or Lockheed Martin can sell directly to Saudi Arabia. Um, So both ways happen. Um, uh, How do I move? One sec. Okay. Um, Two pieces of uh, two laws kind of govern arms sales, um, help give procedure to arms sales in the U.S. There's the Arms Export Control Act and the Foreign Assistance Act. Um, some highlights from these two laws. Um, arms Export Control Act, uh, it requires end-use monitoring, which I'll get into in a second. Um, it requires the State Department to notify Congress of a sale if it's over a certain threshold. So when arms are sold from the US to another country and it's under a certain threshold, then Congress does not need to be notified about the sale. We don't often hear about those sales. Um, the information does come out eventually and it does add up to billions of dollars. Um, so they're not like, it's not insignificant, um, but there is less transparency there um, with sales that aren't absolutely massive. And then it gives rules for the State Department uh, to license a sale. Then the Foreign Assistance Act, I think the most significant part of this that I I love to emphasize because of uh, Jeff Abramson, Abramson, who is here today with us, I believe I saw his name in the chat. Um, Section 502B of the Foreign Assistance Act prohibits security assistance like arms sales to foreign governments if they regularly and consistently violate human rights. So that's something we don't talk about enough, but our own law like bans us from selling weapons to countries that uh, regularly and consistently violate human rights. So like, for example, would it technically be legal for us to sell 
weapons to Saudi Arabia. Like we just, uh, like the <clears throat> US just announced a huge sale of missiles. And, you know, we have to ask the question, is this, does this go against section 502B? Is it, is Saudi Arabia regularly and consistently violating human rights in Yemen? Code Pink would say yes. Um, so this is very basic. Okay, so it's more nuanced than this, but here's sort of the, the process for how the US would sell weapons. So there's a negotiation between two countries or a private company and a country. Like I said, there are those two sales I mentioned earlier. Um, <clears throat> so there's a period of negotiation. What uh, does that country want to buy? How much are they gonna sell it for, et cetera. The Arms Export Control Act requires the State Department to notify Congress uh, if the sale is large enough, like I said. So Congress will get notified of the sale. Then Congress has 15 to 30 days to introduce a joint resolution of disapproval to block the export license from being issued by the State Department. So 15 days um, for Congress uh, to do anything is kind of a very short window of time. If you've ever had to um, work with Congress on anything, it seems like a very short amount of time. But it's 15 days for NATO countries and Israel close allies, 30 days for other countries like Saudi Arabia's 30 days. <clears throat> then if a joint resolution of disapproval is not passed, the State Department can issue the export license. Um, but important to emphasize, uh, delivery weapons can take years. Um, have they been manufactured yet? If they haven't, they have to be manufactured. It takes a long time. So um, up until delivery, Congress um, can block a sale at any point. So it's not just a joint resolution of disapproval, um, but that's usually when like uh, organizations like Code Pink kind of uh, hop on Congress to take action is within those first 15 to 30 days. <clears throat> So a little bit more about the joint resolution of disapproval. It can be introduced in the House or Senate. Um, for example, one passed under Trump through both houses, through the House and Senate, um, for an arms sale to the United Arab Emirates. Trump vetoed it, but Congress didn't have enough votes to override the veto. Um, the joint resolution of disapproval has been um, not, not useful, really, in blocking sales, uh, good at uh, raising moral outrage, that kind of thing. Um, most recent example, actually, is very, very, very recent, only a few days ago, um, Senator Rand Paul introduced a joint resolution of disapproval to block a missile sale to Saudi Arabia, um, and it didn't pass uh, the Senate. So huge bummer. Um, but other mechanisms, like I said, an arms sale can be blocked at any point until delivery. That can take years. So other legislation can be introduced in Congress. Um, it wouldn't be a JRD. It would be something different. Um, it would be <clears throat> a law it, like directing um, uh, the sale to not go through. The State Department could revoke the export license. Technically, if they issued it, they could revoke it. And then a president can stop an arms sale at any point. He could just be like, nope, we're not doing it anymore. Okay, now I'm going to talk about end use monitoring. And this is a very a detailed slide, but so that, like I said, the Arms Export Control Act requires uh, the government to do end use monitoring, which is exactly what it sounds like. Monitoring the end use of a weapon that we sell to a different place. Um, and it's not great. It's not very effective because like, for example, I mean, John might get into this a little bit more. Let's say we sell a batch of weapons 
to <clears throat> another country. And um, the form that they have to fill out at the beginning says, um, you know, who are we selling it to? We could say, it could be filled out as the military of Saudi Arabia. We don't know what unit it's going to, which makes it hard to monitor the end use of a weapon that we sell somewhere else. So it's not great. It's not very accurate. Um, it definitely needs to be improved if we're actually serious about um, fulfilling our human rights obligations to the rest of the world. Okay. Now this is where I turn it over and this is where I'll wrap up. Um, more recently, arms sales of small arms, so things like semi-automatic rifles and that kind of thing, have been taken from the, the State Department and moved to the Department of Commerce, um, which, like I mentioned when I was talking about the Arms Export Control Act and it when it requires the State Department to notify Congress of sales, this thing doesn't really exist for the Department of Commerce. There are other rules um, around uh, arms sales in the Department of Commerce. So it's uh, less transparency, which is problematic. Um, so kind of a huge issue. And, and President Biden has promised to move some of these sales back to the State Department. So there's more transparency there, but that hasn't happened yet. So that's why we're having this event today. And with that, I will let John talk to you all more, uh, more about this issue in the Department of Commerce. I think a lot of times in arms exports, people focus on the big things, focus on the expensive things, things that cost hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars. And of course, some of the uh, Middle Eastern clients of the arms companies um, are, are purchasing that much. But uh, firearms actually cause uh, most of the harm in uh, armed conflict and other types of violence around the world. And they don't cost as much uh, per unit or, or on the whole, they are much less expensive than these enormous systems that so much attention is put on it, typically uh, by Congress, but often by activists as, as well. Um, the other thing I want to mention is that uh, a lot of times this conversation happens in a space like this, where people are talking about international issues. But as you know, within the United States, there is a vigorous, shall we say, conversation about firearms in general within the United States. That conversation usually doesn't include how US firearms are being used in other countries. And yet, just taking Mexico, let's just take the example of Mexico by itself. The number of gun homicides in Mexico with US sourced firearms is probably greater than the number of gun homicides in all of the United States. So when we're looking at the US gun market, the impact overseas uh, or, or just in other nations and other communities outside of the United States is at least as great as it is here. And here we have this principle of background checks. It's not universal. It's very, very poorly um, implemented in many parts of the United States. But the principle is this. If someone, an end user, has committed a violent crime, they've um, beat their spouse, they have um, committed some other kind of violent crime, they are not eligible, legally eligible, to purchase a firearm in this country. 
And yet that principle is not being applied when we look at exports of firearms to other nations, um, particularly um, police and military units. So I'm gonna um, show you a few slides for a moment. Um, and uh, um, one of the things I wanna note is that um, the, the markets, the export markets for US firearms have been uh, growing dramatically. Um, so uh, this one, and I, my thing is blocked here. Uh, this is uh, showing you in the last 15 years, the number of semi-automatic pistols that have been exported by the United States. And you can see that there's been steady growth. Now, the other thing I want you to notice is that 2020 was a banner year. The, the, the regulatory change that Danica talked about in which pistols are now, the export of pistols are now being regulated by the Commerce Department, which wants to sell things, um, instead of the State Department. That uh, regulation came into force in March of 2020, just as the pandemic was beginning. And um, you'll see, of course, that the number of semi-automatic pistols exported in 2020, and actually particularly in the second six months of 2020, um, was a record high. But I also want you to notice that this is not just because of this rule change. This is a result of a, an ongoing loosening of the rules and a practice in export of these weapons around the world. The same applies if we look at um, uh, military firearms. So this is military long guns, rifles, and shotguns um, exported over the last 18 year period. And again, 2020 was a record year. Now I do wanna note that in, that in the first 10 months of 2021, for both military long guns and for pistols, the numbers have gone down there. They're still at relatively historic highs, um, but it has not continued to grow after that, that first um, enormous growth in the last year. So what does this look like in a particular country like Mexico? This is legal exports, which is just part of the overall flow of firearms from the United States into Mexico. We know there's an enormous, enormous flow of guns illegally trafficked from uh, purchases within the United States over the border in, into Mexico. 70% uh, uh, of all uh, firearms recovered in Mexico are sourced to the United States. But what we see here, and you know, Medea asked this thing in the chat about Leahy law, which applies to assistance. And most people are paying attention when they look at, at military relationships with other countries, they're mo usually looking at assistance. But this is just a graph of sales. And we can see that when the, the formal US-Mexico drug war began in 2007, the so-called Merida, Merida, Merida Initiative, um, we had an enormous growth in the sales of firearms to Mexico. And even after assistance went down in 2011 and 12, the number of firearms and the, and the dollar value of those firearms has continued to, to be extraordinarily high. Um, and we've also seen that the number of gun homicides in Mexico has continued to increase over that time period. In the last three years, it's plateaued at historically high levels that have never been seen in that country before um, the drug war was declared or before the, the flood of US firearms into the country, both through exports and illegal means. And you know, the, 
Mexico is not the only neighbor that is being impacted by these exports. So Honduras, which um, is uh, in a severe crisis, um, has been for a long time, but is even more so. We'll see what happens with gun exports um, under the new government. But um, um, it, the armed forces there are also being um, armed with exported weapons. Now, how does this actually occur? I think Danica was, it was great how you laid out how the mechanisms of this, how this occurs. Um, one other thing I want to mention is when we talk about migration and we talk about the people who are fleeing Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, Haiti, other nations, Mexico, um, and they're, they're seeking safety, they're seeking asylum. And they typically, if they're going to get into the United States, they have to cross through Mexico, if, particularly if they're poor. And in crossing Mexico, they have to go through these areas that are either controlled by criminal organizations or controlled by state forces that are going to deport them. Um, and frequently, those state forces and criminal organizations are working together. And uh, migrants have been um, particularly targeted um, for violence within Mexico. So the, the ways in which migration policy and gun policy and practice by the United States are reinforcing the, the toxic and violence, uh, toxicity and violence um, that, that people who are migrating and others are experiencing is, is, uh, is especially um, heinous. So there are two pieces that I wanna say about what can be done here. Um, one is that um, uh, Senator Leahy, who, after whom the Leahy law was named, um, has inserted a uh, provision in the coming year's foreign aid bill, known as the State and Foreign Operations Bill, um, that would begin to identify who are the end users, at least in Mexico and Central America, of U.S. exported firearms. Because right now, the State Department is not, doesn't even have the information about who are the police and military units that are gonna be the end users. They can't, don't even have the capacity right now to apply that kind of principle, the Leahy law principle that says, okay, if a foreign military or police unit has committed a gross human rights abuse, if there's just credible information leading us to believe that, then they can't get US assistance by law. It's broken a lot of times, yes, but there is a law that can be invoked. It can't be invoked for assistance, and it can't also be invoked without the information about where the weapons are going. That principle of background checks to, to buyer, for buyers of lethal weaponry also can't be applied if nobody in the system knows where they're going, except for the governments where they're going. So this provision, which um, has been passed through the Senate, would at least require the identification of those end users in Mexico and Central America in order to apply this principle of, of not allowing firearms to get to individuals or units implicated in serious crimes. That is now at the House. So the House version did not have such a provision. So both of the foreign aid bills are going into conference, conference between House and Senate. And so I'm going to uh, put some of this information in the chat because a very particular thing, uh, action that would be really helpful right now is for the House appropriators to hear from people that this is an important provision. Um, the one last thing I want to mention is 
something that Danica said though. So this is the promise that Joe Biden's made in late 2019, before the regulatory change around gun exports went into force. At that time, he said he will ensure that the authority for firearms exports stays with the uh, State Department, and if needed, reverse a proposed rule. Now the administration is saying that if needed means, well, maybe it's not needed even after it's happened. But this language came before the rule was, was actually promulgated, was, it was, was put into effect. The if needed actually um, speaks to whether it's gonna go into effect. And now the Biden administration is trying to backpedal and say, well, you know, we don't really think it's needed. So we do want folks to contact the Biden administration. Um, I wanted to ask a question. Uh, it, this is so scandalous. You know, you think about the debate that we have in this country over firearms and all the while nobody is talking. Very few of us are talking about arming the uh, entire world with semi-automatic weapons. There seems to be a total lack of awareness. So I'm, I'm really appreciative of the work that you're doing, John and Danica, to bring this to our attention. What? What do you think is Biden's motivation for going back on his word to move these small arms sales from back to the State Department where he, you know, in refusing to do so? You know, is it the money from the, the arms brokers? What's going on here? You know, I, I don't like to speculate about motivation. I'm much more interested in people's actions. Um, it, it could guide us maybe if we, if we knew what was motivating the administration. I would say that the Obama administration also um, was not, uh, the, the, under the Obama administration, the number of gun exports grew uh, globally. Um, there, were, there, were, there was rhetoric around stopping the flow of weapons into Mexico that was not matched with any kind of action. I just think that there's not a lot of political will there um, I would also say that uh, um, the the gun lobby has a does have a big impact, and um, even in Congress, it's it's not just in the administration and the executive branch, but uh, like a, a a provision in the NDAA that did not get through an amendment that did not get um, voted on or accepted from Normatores would have um, at least restored congressional notification for uh, proposed uh, firearms exports that did not get through. So I think the political will in the Democratic Party in general on this issue is not very strong. You know, they kind of would like to see it happen, but it's not very strong. Yeah, so thank you for that, John. Um, and then we have a question from Gustavo. So who proposed the recent sale to Saudi Arabia? Was it a Congress member or the president? Um, so Danica, if you wanted to answer that. Yeah, it was the it was the Biden administration. So it was the State Department. It was President Biden. Is Mexico suing U.S. arms manufacturers? So yes, in in August, the government of Mexico uh, filed an unprecedented lawsuit against eleven U.S. gun companies in federal court in in Massachusetts um, because of their negligent practices in promoting the illegal trafficking of guns across the US border um, that are estimated to be, you know, 250,000 firearms a year illegally trafficked across the border. And 
the gun companies know this. It's it, it has to be part of their business model. And um, so this is a it, it will be a challenge to those gun companies that have eluded any kind of uh, legal liability for for many uh, aspects of gun violence within the United States. Um, and I think it's also opened the conversation so that it's not just about the violence in Mexico is not about drug trafficking or even the drug war, but it, it puts the, the spotlight on the producers of these guns that are profiting so much from bloodshed in the US and Mexico and in many other countries. Yeah, um, and then kind of related to that, so Medea asks, can US companies legally sell weapons to businesses in Mexico or Central America? Um, for example, Walmart that used to sell guns. So um, in Mexico, the only legal seller of firearms is the Mexican army. So the Mexican army imports firearms and then sells them, but mostly to police um, uh, police forces. It's uh, it's very you know the United States is one of the most open markets in the world in terms of the ability to obtain a firearm. Um, Mexico is much more strict, like many other countries. In 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 Honduras and Guatemala and El Salvador, the rules vary. There are some um, private sellers. Many of those private sellers have contacts with the national militaries, um, and there are also private security companies that obtain. Uh, firearms. Um, so it's, it's, it's a slightly more open system in those countries, um, but also uh, more you know, controlled by a small number of actors um, and also not very transparent at all. Yeah, um, and then another question, uh, probably also for you, John, how are the lawsuits in the U.S. against the illegal gun trafficking by U.S. gun manufacturers faring? So um, they were filed in August. Uh, about a month ago, uh, the gun companies gave their formal response. And then Mexico, the government of Mexico will have its formal response by the end of January. Many um, groups and actors are being act, um, asked whether they want to file amicus briefs in support of the lawsuit. Um, so I think that um, if people are interested and groups are interested, that's something that um, especially organizations will be able to sign on to. I think those will be circulating probably in the first part of January. Um, and I think that, you know, the more support that, that can show, you know, this is not just a, a legal action and, and the legal outcome is not the only thing. It's also a, a political and narrative action. So um, I think there's there's opportunities for for really building a movement um, in addition to the the legal outcomes. I think there's been some increased interest. Like we've been working on this, on, on arms uh, gun sales to Mexico, and there was a letter from eight senators that was uh, signed earlier this year, sent to the uh, um, Secretary of State Blinken, uh, really calling for a suspension of gun sales to Mexico until these end use controls are, are really effective. That's a new step. Um, there have been letters about the illegal flows. There have been concerns about human rights in Mexico and in Central America, but senators calling for a suspension of that flow is new. 
that point that Danica made earlier that it can be held in, up until delivery is key. And uh, you know, I do think that we need to support those actions when members of Congress take them and keep educating them because I, you know, the staff person for Gregory Meeks was was like, you have to tell me more about this because they have a million issues on their plates. And so uh, getting their attention and, and educating the staffers um, and letting the, the members of Congress know that there's constituencies that are interested in this, that it's not just the NRA and the National Shooting Sports Foundation that are interested in this, um, I think is super important for moving the needle and, and reducing the harm. That was John Lindsay Poland, coordinator of a global exchange project titled Stop U.S. Arms to Mexico. Earlier, we heard from Danica Katowicz, a Code Pink organizer working on our Middle East campaign, also the coordinator of Code Pink's Youth Peace Collective. Both Danica and John were featured guests on Code Pink Congress. I want to thank our guests, my co-host on Code Pink Congress, Medea Benjamin, also the co-founder of Code Pink, who joined me at the beginning of the show to announce our 2022 executive order wish list for President Biden. Then Colonel Ann Wright and anti-war activist Pat Elder on the military's contamination of drinking water in Hawaii shut down the Red Hill fuel facility. Tell that to the White House. And finally, we heard from Danica Katowicz and John Lindsay Poland on the hidden ways in which the United States arms the world. I'm Marcy Winograd for Code Pink Radio on WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City and WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C. Also on Spotify and iTunes. Never give up, never surrender. Advocate for what's right, work for peace, and join us at CodePink.org. Thank you. Laden. You think they're foes? They're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before. Been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil. We know there's a link. They say code war. We say code pink. It's blood for oil. We know there's a link. They say code war. We say code pink. Code pink for freedom. Code pink for peace.